Well, good morning. Ever been to a therapist? Well, good morning. Ever been to a therapist, some kind of therapist? How about a prayer therapist? You ever been to a prayer therapist? Paul Miller writes in his really uh, outstanding book called A Praying Life, he, he describes an interaction in the office of a prayer therapist. Let, listen in with me. It's, therapist says, let's begin by looking at your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Second Corinthians says that God says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me. What does it mean that you're a son or daughter of God? And the client says, I guess it means that I have complete access to my heavenly father through Jesus. I have true intimacy based not on how good I am, but on the goodness of Jesus. Not only that, it, it means Jesus is my brother. I'm a fellow heir with him. The therapist says, that's right. You've done a wonderful job of describing the doctrine of sonship. Now tell me what it's like to be with your father. What's it like for you to talk with him? The client tentatively says, well, it's difficult even to be in his presence for just a couple of minutes. My mind wanders. I'm not sure what to say. Sometimes I wonder, does prayer make any difference? Is God even there? And then I feel guilty for my doubts, and I just give up. The therapist says, I'm probably telling you something you already know, but your relationship with your Heavenly Father is dysfunctional. You talk as if you have a relationship, but you don't. In theory, it's close, but practically, it's distant. You need help. What would a prayer therapist say to you? If there were such a thing, and you could go and sit with them, what, what would a prayer therapist say to you about your relationship with your Heavenly Father based on prayer? The therapist in this story is implying that prayer is indicative of our faith, of our relationship with God. And he's telling us the news is not good. If you want to read one book on prayer and you're not a reader, let me recommend a book called uh, Enjoying Your Prayer Life, prayer life excuse me, Enjoying Your Prayer Life by Michael Reeves. And I'll, I'll post some resources hopefully later this week online for you. But you could start with that one because it's really like a glorified pamphlet. It's maybe 25 pages, the entire book. And then you can impress all your friends and say you, you read a book on prayer. But it's really a good book, really encouraging book on prayer. And the, but the book starts this way. He says, um, this is not a new revelation, but sadly, most of us are not good at prayer. Um, moreover, it seems even church leaders are not communing with God much. How healthy can their churches be or fellowship groups be if this is the case? There was a recent survey that found that only 16% of pastors, 16% of pastors were very satisfied with their personal prayer life. 47% were somewhat satisfied, 30% are somewhat dissatisfied, and 7% were very dissatisfied. Those are the pastors. It's interesting, we do these little health reports with all of our missionaries on a regular basis just to see how they're doing, give them a chance to raise a flag for a special concern so we can care for them. And almost always, one of the areas where they score themselves the lowest has to do with prayer. And, and those are our, our missionaries. Um, all of this to say is that prayer matters a great deal, 
and we are often bad at it. So what, what should we do about that? Well, I'm really glad you asked because you can tell by the screen we're about to start a new series called Mentors in Prayer. And for the next 10 weeks, I think it's 10 weeks, Daniel said nine. He's preaching on one of them. Maybe he's going to do something totally off track and not do one on prayer. I don't know. But what we'll do the next 10 weeks, we'll look at uh, different prayers or patterns of prayer in the Bible and let them mentor us in our prayer life. Okay. Um, this is intended to be extremely practical. It's intended to help you actually learn how to pray better, more satisfyingly, and more Christ-honoringly. Um, how to meaningfully draw near to God and release His power and grace into our lives as well as the lives of others. What this means is you should take notes. Okay? You should come to church with the expectation that God is going to teach you something about prayer. So you can use your phone or your iPad or even a scrap of paper if those still exist. And you can, but you should come with the expectation, I am on a hunt to find something from God that will help me draw near to Him more meaningfully, release His power more beautifully into the lives of those around me through prayer. Okay. So now would probably be a good time to stop and pray. If you'll bow with me, let's, let's do that. Lord, have mercy on us, your people. Um, prayer is this, it, it's this great sacred privilege, and it's hard for us. Help us. Jesus, we pray what your disciples prayed. Teach us, teach us, Jesus, how to pray. And so I pray now that in your kindness, each one in this room, each of us, might be encouraged and challenged and prompted and taught by your spirit and your word how it is that we can pray more meaningfully and beautifully and powerfully. Um, help us, Lord, we pray, by your Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, our first prayer mentor that we want to look at this week, we want to learn from this week, is the early church. The early church whose example is contained in the book of Acts. It Really, its entirety. And I, I know some of you are thinking, I thought we were finished with the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts for a year. We are finished with the book of Acts. But the book of Acts is not finished with us. So today we're going to go back over some of the territory we've been thinking about, especially as it looks at prayer. While we were going through prayer as a congregation, I was doing a personal study of what, what I could learn from the book of Acts about praying. And the book of Acts is full of amazing insights. I'll just share two large ones with you uh, today. And one of the things we saw in our study of Acts over the past year is that, you know, I would say this often, if you took a snapshot of the church gathered in Acts, they were often gathered for prayer. Um, you'd find them praying. And you could say this, and the book of Acts does say this exact thing a couple of times, you could say the early church was devoted to prayer. And that's the first thing we want to be mentored in by this early church. What does it mean for you and for me to be um, devoted to prayer? Look, before you even get out of the first chapter of the book of Acts, the believers are gathering. They, they enter a house. They go up to the upper room where they're staying. Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, 
Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James, all these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So this band of believers, as it first forms in the pages of the book of Acts, they are devoted, it says, to prayer. One accord devoted to prayer. If you flipped over another page to Acts 2.42, famously, four things the early church was devoted to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and, and the prayers, it says. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Paul, who really takes center stage in the latter part of the book of Acts, writes a letter to the church in Rome uh, on his way and his travels throughout the book of Acts. He writes this letter to Rome. And this is what he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That expression, be constant, it's the same language. It's the language of devotion. He's calling us to be devoted in prayer. He wrote another letter to a church in Colossae. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Again, that's the language of devotion. He's saying, be devoted in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The idea of being devoted is described different ways. I like some, a couple of them. One of them was um, to be devoted is to persist obstinately. So we, we're going to learn how to persist obstinately in prayer. Another expression is to persevere, to spend much time. To be devoted is to give much time. And persevere in a thing. If you want to put a face with being devoted, you might, might use this face. This guy's name is uh, he's Colonel Joe Curtis. He was a fighter pilot in, in the Air Force. He served in World War II, uh, the Korean War, and Vietnam. But his devotion really lay in the area of the Atlanta Falcons. Okay? Colonel Joe witnessed 300 and 76 straight home games over 48 seasons. Okay. He'd been to every home game since the Falcons' inaugural season in 1966. Um, the only game that he missed or when, when he stopped his streak was in uh, 2014. He was 96 years old. During that time, they played about 765 games. They lost 420 times. Okay? But he was still devoted. That's devoted. Okay, That is persistently obstinate in your devotion to your team. That's what we want to talk about today, being that kind of devotion to prayer. However, when we talk about devotion to prayer, you need to know that we're really talking about kind of a secondary or derived devotion. Um, Jesus talked about our great devotion in Luke chapter 16. He says, no servant can serve two masters. For he'll hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Our great devotion is to God. Prayer, our devotion to prayer, is a reflection of that. Paul Miller wisely puts it this way. He says, prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect with God. Oddly enough, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they're focusing on praying, not on God. 
It says, prayer is not the center. Getting to know a person, God, getting to know God, that is the center. So devotion in prayer, then, is a reflection of our devotion to God. And by God's grace, as we'll see as we go along, it also fuels that devotion to God. So prayer is both reflection and fuel for that. What marked the early church was love for Jesus reflected in prayer, devotion to prayer. May it be so with us. So back in Acts, let's think about what shape this devotion took in the early church. What, what, what did it play out like? And the first thing is you notice that when they were devoted to prayer, they were devoted to a particular kind of prayer. They were devoted to prayer together. Again, look at those early verses that we already looked at. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. They were all in one room. There were about 120 disciples probably at this time. All in one room together, devoted to prayer together. Um, even in Acts 2, the other verse we looked at where it says they were devoted to the prayers... You notice there's an article there, the prayers. And what probably they were doing was participating in the, the normal Jewish practice. These were all Jewish believers. Normal Jewish practice was prayer together in the temple three times a day. Nine in the morning, noon, and then three o'clock in the afternoon. They would do that together as a people in the temple. You even get a sense for this when Jesus teaches us how we should pray, right? The Lord's Prayer. Look at the language of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This language is the language of togetherness. And so even though Jesus has just taught on the importance of secret prayer, here he's teaching us how we pray for one another and how we pray when we are together. D.A. Carson says, When I, as one follower of Christ among many, address our Father, my concern is to brace our daily bread, our sins, and our temptations, not just mine. So though Jesus taught us about private prayer, he also calls us to a collective and um, it was very counterculture for us. Okay? Um, Mark Dever helps us see the value of it, for us especially as Americans. He says, participating regularly in corporate prayer begins to take out the individualistic assumption that Christianity is only about me and my relationship with God. And it begins to resituate us as individual Christians in the congregation so that we become aware of this person who's sick, this person who's just had a baby, this person who's unemployed, this person who's just become a Christian, participating in corporate prayer helps us discover that our lives as followers of Christ are tied up with one another's. So the early church was devoted to prayer, and specifically, they were devoted to prayer together. Are you? If somebody followed you around for a month, would they say, this person is devoted to prayer with other believers. That's a priority for them. They are persistently obstinate 
and their commitment and devotion to it. Um, so shameless plug for our monthly corporate prayer gathering. Okay? They prayed three times a day together. We've dumbed it down as far as we can go, people. Once a month, okay, we gather together all together and we pray. First Sunday night of the month normally. Sometimes it'll get bumped to the second. Uh, se September, because of the holiday, it'll be bumped to the second. But pencil it on your calendar and use that as a way to build devotion and praying together. Come and join us. It'll be the fastest hour of the week for you. Um, but it's not just, obviously, formal gatherings of the church are not the only way that we can pray together. Um, let, me, let me ask you, to or challenge you to think about something. Let me challenge you to think about inserting prayer into your friendships with other believers that you know, especially people in our congregation, friends that you have here. That you would, after you've had dinner together or after you've bumped into each other somewhere or you've spent some time together, you would simply say, let's have prayer together. And you'd insert into that into your friendship. So that as you're ready to leave after you've finished your time, you'll just say, hey, let's have prayer together. It doesn't have to be an hour of prayer together. Okay? Maybe it'll just be a, a short prayer of thanks, but you're injecting prayer together. And this is common in the book of Acts. We just see people praying together, especially in really important gatherings together. Um, Paul in Acts chapter 20, it's the last time he's going to see his friends here. And when he told them that, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Okay. But this friendship's marked with prayer together, just right there on the spot. Flip your Bible a page in Acts 21. We see something very similar. Luke writes, When our days there were ended, we departed, went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, right there on the beach, we prayed and said, farewell to one another and went on board the ship and they returned home. Prayer, it seems, was what Christians who loved each other did in the early church. They had prayer together in those most important hours. You know, when they were seeing each other for the last time, they, they prayed. Um, it's how they said farewell when they didn't know if they would see each other again. And, and they did it, I think, in these most important hours because they practiced it together in the lesser hours. Okay? They, were, they were people who were constantly in prayer together. Building prayer into the ordinary helps make prayer your first response in the extraordinary. Okay? You know, it just invaded their days. Again, Acts chapter 2, they were devoted to the prayers. The consistent daily practice of regular prayer together. If you drop down even a couple verses, it says it again, different language. Day by day, attending the temple together. The temple was where they went for prayer, and attending, there's the language of devotion. Okay? They were devoted to going to the temple together. They were devoted to daily practices in the ordinary, so that when the extraordinary came, it was just what they did. We pray together. Wasn't something weird that made them felt strange to them? Because they'd been practicing it in their daily conversations. As they had lunch together at the end, they said, let's have prayer together. And, and they would pray. 
when we think about the early church's devotion to prayer and what shape it takes, they were devoted together. Another thing that you see when you look at the book of Acts about their devotion, um, their leaders were devoted to prayer. Remember back in Acts chapter 6, they had a problem in Acts 6. There were widows being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, which is serious enough, but it may well have been that it was happening along racial lines, which made it perhaps even more complicated and, and perhaps even a sinful element in the mix. It wasn't simply overlooking. And this is brought to the apostles. Okay? The 12, this is how they responded to that urgent need. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will point to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay? The leaders of the early church refused to let other matters of great importance derail them from prayer and the ministry of the word. And again, in this case, it was pretty significant stuff. Widows were being overlooked in daily, their need for daily food and possibly even exacerbated along racial lines. It's a big deal, but the apostles will not bite. They will not neglect prayer and the ministry of the word, even for such a legitimate and critical matter. The press on Christian leaders is always to tend to lesser things with the time that should have gone to prayer. That always presses, even our leaders, it presses us. You know, we sit around the table and we say, um, this guy's got a doctorate. I got elders who've got doctorates. And you say, he's got a doctorate. We should probably, we should probably listen to him. Then another guy speaks up and we say, he's got tremendous business experience. We should probably listen to him. I say, you know, another guy speaks up, me, for instance, and they say, our pastor has 24 years of experience. We should probably listen to him. Okay, that's never really happened, but it could happen. I mean, it, it could happen. They could say that one day. I'm still waiting for that to happen. We tend to trust in experts. In his book, Future Babel, uh, Dan Gardner explores our obsession with experts who claim to predict future events. And he cites the work of a guy named Philip Tetlock, who's a professor at University of Pennsylvania. He, he did a 20-year study of 20,450 predictions from 284 experts. And he concluded that as a group, the experts did little better and sometimes considerably worse than a dart-throwing chimpanzee, right? But still, we want to trust in our experts. It's, it's whose advice we want to follow. While there is much to be said for heeding wisdom, when wisdom usurps prayer, it can rapidly become folly. So pray for our leaders that we would be men devoted to prayer like the early church. And those of you who are budding young church leaders, we have a number. Um, if you are not devoted to prayer, then you have work to do before you can serve the church in leadership. You know, their, their devotion to prayer shaped their leaders. Um, it, also, it also shaped how they responded to trial and hardship. See, in the early church, they were so devoted to prayer that when hardship came, the first thing they did was pray. It was their reflex. It's what they did. 
Um, Acts chapter 4, right? Peter has been arrested. He's been cross-examined. And he has been threatened. He comes back to the church when he's released and went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, <clears throat> again, including threats. And when they heard it, this is what they do. They lift their voices to God and say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And a beautiful prayer unfolds. Their first response to threats against them is to pray. An even more um, amazing one is in Acts 16. Paul and Silas are arrested. Remember this one? Um, the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So, attacked by a crowd, publicly stripped and beaten with rods, thrown into prison, and what do they do? They pray and they sing. And so we pray, help us, Father, when our hardship is greatest, to lean into you hard with prayer and song far into the night. Make it so, God. See, prayer was their first response, not their last resort. They did not try to lobby the authorities as far as we know. They did not generate letter-writing campaigns or devise prison escape strategies, as helpful as all those things might be. The church was devoted to prayer as their first response. And why, why do you think that was? Why is that their first response? Right? And I would suggest it's because they were desperate. Okay? They really understood that they had no other option but God. Um, Tim Keller tells a story. He's a pastor in New York City, right? So he was there when 9-11 happened, and all the pressure of shepherding and pastoring in New York City after 9-11, I can't imagine what that was like. On top of that, his wife has been diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and he's diagnosed with cancer. And so in the midst of all of this, his wife comes to him and says, you have to pray with me, and you have to pray with me every night, or we're not going to make it. And she tells this story. She says, imagine, she tells Tim, she says, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. She said, well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We just can't let it slip our minds. See, this is hard for us because we don't admit how desperate we are. We cloak our desperation in success and resources. Paul Miller says American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. Because we are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments and production 
But prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our bodies screams, get to work. He says, when, we're, when we aren't working, we're used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, cell phones make free time as busy as work. When we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. Exhausted by the pace of life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. If we try to be quiet, we are assaulted by what C.S. Lewis called the kingdom of noise. And one of the subtlest hindrances of prayer, he says, is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. And because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it's quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. See, they were desperate and they admitted it. We are desperate and we deny it. So they knew they were desperate. Halsby, oh Halsby in his little book called Prayer. Another great little book that I'd recommend to you. It's like having a cup of coffee with your grandpa and talking about prayer. It's really a fantastic little book. Um, this is what he says. He says, prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only he who is helpless can truly pray, and they knew they were helpless. They admitted it. But on the other hand, not only were they desperate, on the other hand, they trusted God's goodness and power. And you hear these themes in the Psalms, which are prayers. Listen, listen to these. Um, yeah, there we go. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 16 says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. A great a great prayer for us to pray. Confesses our need and God's goodness. So they're devoted to prayer because they acknowledge their desperation and their helplessness. And they knew God. And they trusted him. And this takes us to kind of a second highlight that I want to add alongside them being devoted to prayer. Um, before we go there, though, this is the practical part. What would it look like for you personally to be more devoted to prayer? What shape should that take, could that take in your life? If you're going to just go up the next rung of the ladder in devotion to prayer, what would that look like? Okay, here's the, here's the double dog dare you challenge, right? Have a conversation with somebody about that today. If you can't fit it in today, um, later this week, somebody other than God, okay, talk to God about it, and then I want you to talk to somebody else. Just have a conversation. What, what's it going to look like for me to be more devoted? And they can pray for you, and you can pray for them. Um, so, the early church was devoted to prayer. The second thing we see about them is that they were, they were hopeful in prayer. Because prayer yielded stunning results, even miraculous results, 
in the book of Acts, crazy things, unexpected things. Um, Acts chapter 12, Peter's in prison, right? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Herod's about to bring Peter out on that very night, and Peter's sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains and sentries before the door uh, when they were guarding the prison. And the next few verses, an angel shows up, does an amazing rescue of Peter. But what I want to focus on is what happens after that rescue. Uh, down in verse 12, um, Peter finally realizes it's not a dream. He's actually been rescued by an angel. And so when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Peter's in prison. The church is still praying earnestly for him. Now he's out, and he knocked at the door of the gateway. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying it was his angel. Okay. The angel had been earlier. They had that part right. This is actually Peter. Okay. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Okay. They were amazed. Now, the church had been praying earnestly for Peter, but they're shocked by the answer to their prayer. Why is that? I think it's because... God grants more. He grants them more than they are asking. I don't think anybody dreamed to pray, God, send an angel and help Peter bust out of prison and bring him back here. You know, they prayed for his safekeeping. They probably prayed for the outcome of a trial that he'd be released. They were all shocked. They were in disbelief that God would do that. Paul would later describe God as the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Okay? This is the God we pray to, the God who grants more. The God we draw near to when we are suffering or, or when those who are loved by us are suffering and that strikes terror in our hearts, this is the God we draw near to, the God who grants more, far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Here's another example, just for the purpose of encouragement, about what God can do with prayer in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, a little girl has died. Her name is Tabitha. Peter shows up, puts all the mourners outside, kneels down, and he prays. And turning to the body, turning to the corpse, Peter says, Tabitha, arise. And she opened up her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. So, hey, Peter prayed. And this little girl was raised from the dead. Now, at this point, the inclination is to say, but we're not Peter. And I would say, but it's the same God. This is, we pray to the same God. And the power of prayer lies not in the one praying, but the God prayed to. 
Listen to O. Halsby again. He says, notice how graciously prayer has been designed. To pray is nothing more involved than to let Jesus into our needs. To pray is to give Jesus permission to employ his powers in the alleviation of our distress. To pray is to let Jesus glorify his name in the midst of our needs. The results of prayer are therefore not dependent upon the powers of the one who prays. To pray is nothing more involved than to open the door, giving Jesus access to our needs and permitting him to exercise his own power in dealing with them. Okay. Amazing things happen in the book of Acts when God's people pray. For a number of years, um, we've, we've taken a year or two off. Rob Craig used to uh, commission us all, send us out into our neighborhoods at Thanksgiving, right? And we did a thing called canned hunger, and we would go door-to-door with our neighbors, and we would introduce ourselves to our neighbors, and we would tell them that we're going to come back the next day. We're collecting canned goods for families in need so they could have a Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, before we left, though, this is what the, Rob gave us a little script because he knew that we would screw it up if left to our own devices. So he gives us a little script. And this is what we're supposed to say. When we come back, we'll also ask you if there's anything that we could ask of God on your behalf. Something that only God could do. So you understand what Rob's asking us to do, to stand there on our neighbor's porch and say, can we pray something for you that only God could do? That's pretty bold. Are you willing to pray those kind of prayers? Prayers for people that only God could do. The book of Acts encourages to pray that way. Um, you know, I've mentioned before, John Newton's one of my favorite pastor role models. Most of you know John Newton, perhaps. Um, he's the guy, used to be a slave trader, marvelously saved, wrote Amazing Grace, right? This, this is the guy became a pastor, and um, he didn't just write Amazing Grace, he wrote a lot of hymns, and these are uh, lyrics from one of his hymns. One of his hymns goes this way, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much, none can ever ask too much, and uh, I've shared this with you before. You, some of you may remember it. That's the point. So I hope you remember it. Um, Newton liked to tell a story. It's a fictional story about um, a man who asked Alan, Alexander the Great to give him a sum of money in exchange for his daughter's hand in marriage. So Alexander wanted to marry his daughter, and this guy says, no, you've got you to pay for that privilege, Alexander the Great. So Alexander agreed and told the man to request of Alexander's treasure whatever he wanted. So the father of the bride went and asked for an enormous amount. The treasurer was startled, said he could not give out that kind of money without a direct order. Going to Alexander, the treasurer argued that just a small fraction of the money requested would more than serve the purpose. This is Alexander's response. Great king, Alexander the Great, right? He says, no, let him have it all. I like that fellow. He does me honor. He treats me like a king and proves by what he asks that he believes me to be both rich and generous. 
And so Newton helps us apply it. He says, in the same way, we should go to the throne of God's grace and present petitions that express honorable views of the love, riches, and bounty of our king. Ask, large, ask. Be hopeful in prayer. The, the, the church in Acts teaches us to do this, right? Listen to, what, listen to what Jesus encourages us to believe about prayer. And uh, don't let the but whatabouts bother you here. Just be encouraged with what Jesus wants you to believe about prayer. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you, and you will find. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Which one of you? If his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give gifts to your children, how much more will your father give gifts to his children? Mark 11, Jesus says to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. John 14, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So in light of such encouragement, we should always be hopeful in prayer and eager to offer prayer. You have a friend at the office, at school, who's in a hard spot. You should offer to pray. You should say, I would like to pray for you about that. I will pray for you about that. When you face a hard time in your life, you ought to pray about that. You ought to be hopeful in prayer, and hopefulness in prayer should cause you to pray, to pray often. The example of the early church is one of expectant, hopeful prayer, and God answered it in amazing ways, even, even more, beyond what they could ask or imagine, Paul says. You know, there's a lot... There's a lot more we could glean from the early church in Acts about prayer. But I just want to leave you with these two things. Okay? Are you devoted to prayer? What does it mean for you to grow in devotion to prayer? Are you hopeful in prayer? What would it look like? What would it affect your prayer life if you were hopeful as you prayed? You know, this gift of prayer, it comes to us through Christ. The great hope of prayer, though God's mercy sometimes spills over outside of it, but the great hope of prayer, the great promises of prayer, they are for those of us who trust in Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. Tim Keller helps us see how these things are all related, and I'd like to read this to you as we prepare for the table, the Lord's table together. He says, we know God will answer us when we call because one terrible day, he did not answer when Jesus called. 
Jesus prayed in Gethsemane that the cup of suffering on the cross would be taken for him, yet his request was turned down. He goes on to say that sinners deserve to have their prayers go unanswered, but Jesus was the only human being in history who deserved to have all his prayers answered because of his perfect life. Yet he was turned down as if he cherished iniquity in his heart. Why? The answer, of course, he says, is in the gospel. God treated Jesus as we deserve. He took our penalty so that when we believe in him, God can then treat us as Jesus deserved. More specifically, Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. That is why when Christians pray, they have the confidence that they will be heard by God and answered in the wisest way. He says, we know that God will answer us when we call, my God, because God did not answer Jesus when he made the same petition on the cross. He got the great silence so we could know that God hears and answers and so he says we should ask for God for things with boldness and specificity, with ardor and honesty and diligence, yet with patient submission to God's will and wise love, all because of Jesus and all in his name. So now uh, let's draw near to Christ at the table and remember the one who made access to God possible, who made prayer to God possible by his death in our place. On the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his friends and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Let's pray as we approach the table. Jesus, you have made a way for us. You have made a way for us back to the Father by your body broken and your blood shed and then risen on the third day. This is our only hope. And with it, we have access to God. We have access to the Father and to you and to the Spirit because of what you have done. We have access. We have prayer. Prayer like children requesting things of their dad that kind of prayer. And so we want to remember now and worship and exercise that privilege. We want to draw near to you, Jesus, and to the Father by the Spirit. We want to enjoy the privilege of prayer, of communion with you. And this we do, Jesus, for your name's sake and by your grace.